Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Our scripture for today comes from Genesis 10, verse 32 through 11, verse 9. The word of God speaks to us. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and the bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word to us. All right. How are we doing? (laughs) We got the woo boys out. I was a woo boy a second ago talking about decorating for Christmas. Anybody else excited? Yeah, like 12 of you. That's so good. Uh, Hey, listen, I'm really glad to be with you guys today. If you've got a Bible, open to the passage that was just read, uh, Genesis chapters uh, 10 and 11, really uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9 is where we're going to be today. Um, And hey, listen, if you're a guest with us, I'm I'm really glad that you're here. If you're part of the family of one that was baptized, really glad to have you here today. And uh, wasn't that amazing to see those baptisms this morning? Yeah, we can get excited about that, like more than one, yeah. We can get excited about that. It's been a full morning, even three in the last service. It's, it's, um, It's really been amazing. Um, but yeah, if you're a guest with us, I'm glad you're here. If you're also here and you're not a Christian, I just want to say I'm really glad that you're here to process life and faith with us. Um, this is a safe place. This, we want this to be a place where you can bring your doubts, your frustrations. You can bring the stuff that you hate about God. You don't really know what to think about God. We want this to be a place where you can bring all of that. We have, we have our own doubts and questions too. And so we're learning that Jesus uh, can, can handle us in the midst of all of that. He's not insecure about what we think about him. He, he handles our insecurities. Amen. And so you're welcome to come here with all that kind of stuff. Um, but hey, listen, let's, let's pray today. And we're doing this on the front end of a holiday weekend, which I know for some of you would be a happy time. And for others of you, you're a bit nervous about the days to come. And so I want to pray for all of that. I, I feel those mixed emotions every time holiday seasons roll around myself. So as we get to God's word, he knows how to handle us best. And so let's pray and trust him for it. Our God, we come to you in the strong name of your son, Jesus. And I'm so thankful that we even get to say that. Our God, we come to you in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Jesus, you have the name that is above every name. And I pray that the ministry that you wanted to accomplish in pouring out your Holy Spirit 
would for sure be effective in the lives of those that were just baptized today? Would you seal up and fill up every one of those that were baptized to live a life of faithfulness and obedience and delight and joy for Jesus? Thank you for them. God, thank you for the rest of the work you've done in the room for those of us who have already been baptized and reminded of your work to save us. And God, I pray for this coming week that for all the joy and then for all the mixed emotions that'll be present for different kinds of people, God, I just pray that your nearness, I don't have to ask you to be near, you are near. I'm asking that you would help us to know your nearness. Would you help us to be drama-free people around family tables? Would you help us to be the kind of people who would bring to the table the kind of peace that's at your table? Would you help us to live lives of quiet simplicity and grace that would bear witness to a better kingdom? Jesus, as we open your word now, I'm asking that you would form us. Thank you that this is not just an abstract, ancient text stuck somewhere far away from us. This text is living and active and speaks into our very life, even this hour. And so we ask that you would bless it and bless us as we attend to it. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name, and we said, amen. amen. Have you heard the old story about a husband who one Sunday goes to church without his wife? His wife was homesick and had to miss. He goes home, and he's trying to set up lunch. After having attended church, he's trying to set up some microwave leftovers or something, you know, after he was there by himself. And uh, the wife says, hey, how was the sermon today? And he says, it was long. And you could say amen to that, right? It was long. And she says, what was it about? And he says, sin. Man, a few words. And she says, That's, what could the pastor possibly have said for so long about sin? He's just looking forward to get over, to, over his microwave leftovers. And he says, he's against it. <laughs> he's against it. Long sermons about sin just to say you're against it. Hey, I open with that today, cheesy as it may be, because maybe that's how you felt as we've gone through these chapters of Genesis 1 to 11. Sin is one of the dominant themes we've talked about over the last 10 weeks together. You only get two chapters in this book where sin is not in the picture. Two chapters. But after that, it's the primary thing the narrative is dealing with. You get the origin of sin, you get the nature of sin, you get the tragic effect of sin in God's good world, you get the spread of sin to all of people. You get God's judgment on sin, and then you get his promise to one day redeem us from sin. Sin is at the epicenter of everything we've been looking at in Genesis 1 to 11. And we get more of that today. I hope you're up for it as we wrap up the study of the opening here of Genesis 1 to 11. The goal of these 11 chapters has been to show us the origin of God's relationship to the world. What's happening in the world and what's happening with God and why is the world the way that it is and what's God's relationship to all of it. And through these 11 chapters, you may not have seen it as we've been sort of inside of it, but I want us to pan out and notice where we are as we wrap up the opening to this book. There's been a pattern, there's been a cycle that's been established in these chapters. It'll be on the screen, I'll show it to you. In chapters one and two, you get creation. In chapter three, you get the fall of man, sin comes in. In chapter four and five, you get the downward spiral of man because of the spread of sin. And then in chapter six and seven, that's Noah and his judge in, in the flood, and you get God's judgment on sin. But then that story sort of retells itself. There's sort of a, a pattern being established, a cycle, where then in chapters eight and nine, you get recreation. 
It's almost like it starts all over again. God starts over with Noah, just like he started with Adam. God even gives to Noah, we talked about this last week, the same blessing and command he gave to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But then you get, just like with Adam in chapter 3, you get with Noah in chapter 9, the fall of Noah. Just like with Adam, Noah's story ends with him being naked and ashamed in a garden. Adam was in Eden, but then Noah is in his own garden, a vineyard that he planted, naked and ashamed because of his own fall. Then in chapters 10 and 11, you get the downward spiral that sin has now affected the world again. God was trying to cleanse the world of sin, but you can't get rid of sin. It's just sort of there. The lie of the serpent has gone into our hearts, and it's gone everywhere. And then in chapter 11, you get judgment on sin. The story sort of retells itself. And so this, what happens, though, in Genesis 1 to 11 sets the stage. you got to realize it sets the stage for everything else that happens in the biblical storyline. Everything else that plays out plays out of this. And it sets the stage for the questions of what is God going to do about sin? It seems like it's shown up, and it almost seems like it's here to stay. What's God going to do about it? What's he going to do with humanity that continues to rebel against him? What's he going to do about the fact that sin doesn't just act out one time, but it acts out multiple times? Is God going to keep the promise that he first made in Genesis 3.15, that one day there will come one who will be the offspring of woman who will crush the head of the serpent and deal with sin once and for all? Will God keep that promise? Will there be any offspring up to the task? Because by now, the track record looks bleak. And so we'll jump into it today. We're going to do the Tower of Babel, this story of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've heard it before, but we'll do it around three turns today. I'll give them to you and we'll get to work. We'll talk about what they did, what we do, and what God does. What they did, what we do, and what God does. Pick up with me again in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one, one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And so they said to one another, hey, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And so they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves so that we're not dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so where our text picks up is on the other side of the flood. That's what chapter 10 tells us, the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10 is one of those favorite parts of Scripture for everybody. It's a genealogy. It's a list of names. I love to underline all of that, don't you? It's known historically as the table of nations. Where did all the nations come from? It's sort of this global roll call from the line of Noah. And what you get in chapter 10 is sort of the idea that God's blessing and God's command to Noah to be fruitful and to multiply, it succeeded. After the earth was wiped out from the flood, it's now been populated again with all kinds of people. And so at first glance, there's nothing in this passage that appears to be problematic. You sort of read that and you go, hey, what's wrong with a bunch of people on the other side of the flood settling down, wanting to build a city and a tower? They seem unified. They're all speaking in one language, and that's, that's fun. No one's having fights. They're working together. They're developing new technology, the brick. It's an amazing thing, the brick, you know. They want to make Shiner a nice place to live and raise their families. They want to build a city and a tower they could be proud of, something that would show their achievement and how they could overcome collectively on the other side of great disaster. Something they could be known for and make a name for themselves. And so at first pass, when you read these first four verses, you go, hey, what's the problem? 
What's going wrong here? It even sounds a bit virtuous, doesn't it? I know I read this and it sounds like, hey, that, that feels like Oklahoma City, rebuilding and developing new industry on the other side of a bombing. We even have our own Devon Tower to prove that we can survive or something. This sounds like all the communities around us being put back together after a tornado. That's kind of what you do. Hey, the strong are gonna survive and we're stronger together than we would be apart and we're gonna rebuild more. We're gonna rebuild Shawnee, things like that. For them, it was a flood. For us, it's a tornado. This sounds, doesn't it? This sounds like human progress. What's the problem? Everyone's speaking the same language, working together. What's so bad about this? You've gotta remember though, that this whole story is primarily about God and his relationship to humanity, particularly a sinful humanity, and it's about sinful humanity's relationship back to God. And this might just be a simple story of human progress if it weren't for a clear pattern of blessing and the command of God being rejected. And it's not so much easy to see at first pass, so I want you to look back at it in verse two. There's this clear pattern of God's blessing and command being rejected. Verse two, it says this, as the people migrated from where? from the east. That's a subtle reference, but if we're reading through Genesis 1 to 11, the east ought to trigger something in us. Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve were removed, which direction from the garden? East. Eastward movement is going to show up again and again throughout the book of Genesis, and every time it's supposed to trigger something more than just directional travel, eastward movement in the book is movement away from God's presence. It's away from relationship with God. It's away from obedience to God. So it starts, firstly, these people are, it's being signaled to us, moving something on their own terms, away from God. Look at the end of verse two. It says, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they did what? They settled there. Again, a subtle reference, but significant. Remember what God told them to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. But here, they're only obeying part of the command. They're being fruitful and multiplying. They're taking from God what they want, but they're leaving off the parts that they don't want. They've been fruitful and multiplied, but they're settling here, settling together rather than filling the earth. They've decided for themselves what's good. They've decided life would be better together than apart and filling the earth, never mind God's purposes. And then look at verse four. It says, they said to themselves, come, let us build a city and a tower with its top into the heavens so that what? We can make a name for ourselves lest we be displaced over the whole earth. Cities and towers aren't altogether a problem. They're a wonderful thing. But it's the motivation that exposes this whole issue. Let us make a name for ourselves. So at this point in Genesis, here's what's going on here. God's the one who names and by naming what it means is giving meaning. God is the one who gives meaning to both humanity and to life and to what's going forward. And I want you to contrast this to what God says to Abram, a person we meet in the next chapter, chapter 12. So they wanna build a name for themselves, but notice what God says to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, go from your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you, verse two. And he says, and I will make, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And God says, and I will make your name great. You don't make a name for yourself. I'll give you a name. I'll make you great so that you'll be a blessing. And so what they were saying with the tower is this. I don't want God to name me. I'd rather create an image for myself. I don't want to be made in God's image. 
I'd rather determine meaning for life on my own terms apart from God. I don't need God's blessing. I can make peace for myself. Building a tower up to heaven says, I can get to God on my own. I can get to God in my own way. I can get to God on my own terms. If I ever want to get up there, I don't need his help. That's what they're saying with the tower. Doesn't that sound a lot like our current cultural moment? You see, everything about the tower is about human arrogance and a brazen defiance of the living God. So put those three things together. You have a move away from the presence of God. You have a refusal to obey the commands of God. And you have a rejection of their need for God and them placing themselves at center instead of God. The opening of chapter 11 in the story of Babel, you read it at first pass, not so bad. It's actually much darker than we might realize. And that has everything to do with you and me. Has everything to do. So there's what they did, but then there's what we do. Move to today. So I've said this multiple times uh, over my years in preaching here, that there's a danger for us when we read the Old Testament. The danger is thinking that we're reading about something that's so far removed from us that it has nothing to do with us. That's the danger. But that's not how Scripture works. The way that God works in Scripture is always to pull you into a story. That's always what God is doing in Scripture. He wants to pull you into a story, and at first you think the story is about someone else. Or you think the story is about some other kind of people, but then a veil is constantly being removed to expose us along with the people we're reading about. When we read Scripture and the failure of others, if we read it honestly, we also find the finger is very much in our chest. And that's certainly true with the moment in Babel. Think about it. Isn't it true that in our current cultural moment, people are constantly putting themselves in the place of God? People are constantly making a name for themselves rather than a name for God. People are constantly choosing a religion of self all the time. I had a um, conversation with a guy just recently that was a really meaningful conversation. We've become friends over time. He's not a Christian, but we were having this conversation about growing and maturing. And he goes on to tell me with just the most sincerity in his eyes and his voice and his heart and his story. He goes, you know, I'm really working on development and I'm really working on maturing so that I can become my own higher being. So that I can become my own divine, he tells me. People are always putting themselves in the place of God. That's not just sort of unique for him. That story could abound everywhere, across coffee shops everywhere. You have the modern therapeutic movement that puts the individual self at the center of authority. This idea of self-care, which I think is beautiful, can get taken to the extreme when it's a capital S self that is now authoritative to determine everything on your own terms. Then listen to this from best-selling author Glennon Doyle, who would have formerly called herself a Christian but now has moved on to something else. She says this in her book, Untamed. Be still and know, she says. I'd read that verse many times before, but it struck me freshly this time. The verse doesn't say, pull your friends and know, or read books by experts and know, or scour the internet and know. It suggested a different approach to knowing. The question would be, knowing what, Glennon? She says, just stop. If you just stop doing, then you'll start knowing. This seemed like magical nonsense, but, it, but desperate women take desperate measures. She says, I decided to experiment. After the kids left for school, I shut myself in my closet. I sat down on a towel. I closed my eyes, and I did nothing but breathe. 
At first, each 10-minute session felt hours long. The only thing I seemed to, quote, know on that floor was that I was hungry, itchy, suddenly desperate to fold laundry and reorganize my pantry. I was tempted to quit every second, but I was stern with myself. 10 minutes a day is not too long to spend finding yourself, she says. Eventually, I sank deep enough to find a new level inside of me that I had never known existed. There in the deep, I could sense something circulating inside me. It was a capital K knowing, a divine knowing. And after many years, she says, I'm developing now a relationship with this knowing. It's inside of her. We're learning to trust each other, she says. And when I talk, to, when I talk like this, my wife raises her eyebrows and asks, are you just talking to yourself down there? And she says, maybe, but notice this. If what I've learned in the deep is just myself, if what I have learned is not how to commune with God, but how to commune with myself, if I've learned not to trust God, but myself, and if for the rest of my life, no matter how, long, how, how lost I get, I know exactly how to find at where and how to find myself again, if that's all that it is, she says, then that's certainly enough of a miracle for me. That's a chilling testimony. That's a replacement of God with self. She's becoming her own, capital K, knowing, divine. And she says, by be still and knowing, she takes off the part of that verse in Psalm 46 and she becomes her own God, knowing herself. And so here's my point. The mentality of Babel with this brazen human arrogance isn't just something that's stuck in ancient history. It's not what's going on. The Babel mentality is, is popular in our current moment. We're not building towers of defiance necessarily, but we are most certainly trying to make a name for ourselves. I don't need God. I don't want God. I don't need his peace. I don't need him to name me. I don't need to be in his image. I can do all of those things for myself. But here's where I want you to lean in with me for a second. Before we think that that kind of approach is with the crazy world out there, because that'd be easy to say, yeah, Babel was back then, and the craziness is out there. There's something about the foolish arrogance of Babel that's inside of you and me too. It's inside of us. And I know this because we have DIY spiritualities that abound in the church. What do I mean by DIY spiritualities? I mean those ways of believing in God where you take the things that you like about God and you take the aspects of his character that you like, but you leave off the stuff that you don't prefer. You leave off the stuff that you don't like or that doesn't fit with your comfort. So you say, I'm cool with God so long as he doesn't talk about my money. Hey, I'm cool with God so long as he doesn't talk about sexual ethic or what I do with my sexual desires. That should be left to me. After all, it doesn't seem like anyone's getting hurt, you say. I'm cool with God so long as he doesn't talk about my politics. I'm cool with God so long as he doesn't talk about how I spend my time on the weekends or when I'm just trying to decompress. I'm cool with God so long as he changes the parts of my life that I want changed, but he leaves alone the other parts of my life that I just want the same. What's interesting is that many of us have a belief like that, and we're okay with calling that Christian belief. But here's the problem. If whatever version of God you're believing in doesn't have the capacity to disagree with you, 
If whatever God you're believing in can't press on you or disrupt you, if whatever God you're believing in only has the ability to tell you what you want to hear, then let me tell you, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible and neither am I in that scenario. That's not the God of the Bible. It's worshiping an image God of your own making that's only there to serve and to elevate you. What that is, is a covert, very popular Bible Belt American way of worshiping yourself. So the question becomes then, what they did, what we do, what does God do? What does God do with people who insist on putting themselves in the place of him? What does he do? Look at verse five. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, verse five is the center of everything that's happening with Babel. It's the the epicenter of the passage, and it's loaded with irony. You see, they they believed they were working their way up to God into the heavens, but God actually has to come down to see it. Oh, you thought you were building your way to me in your own terms? How come I have to come down so far to see it? This is a father looking at a child's Legos. One scholar notes that it's as though God is down on his hands and knees, even squinting to see their attempts to reach him on their own terms. You see, the reality is that human pride never allows us to see how far we fall short. Pride just won't let you see how far you fall short because it only tells you how great you are. But human pride in the face of the living God is drunkenness. You think you're something, but he has the real muscles. Look at verse six. It says, and the Lord said then, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. This is the only beginning of what they're gonna do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them now. Hey, I want you to notice that verse six is not God somehow being threatened at human progress. This isn't him sort of like, oh no, there's so much potential in humanity. What am I to do? The sense of the passage is concerned for how humanity will be led astray, how far they'll be led astray if their pride doesn't go unchecked. God is concerned about our delusionment of self-sufficiency. So the more sense of the passage is it's more like a concern of a loving family member who's trying to get the bottle out of the hand of a loved one who's an alcoholic but doesn't think there's a problem. That's the sense here. And so what does God do, verses seven to nine? He says this. So let us go down and confuse their language so that they can't understand one another's speech. And so the Lord, what he did is he dispersed them from all over the face, from all over the, face of the earth and they left the building of the city. They, they didn't finish the job, verse nine. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the speech of all the earth and the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so what happens is that God brings a judgment on their pride God brings a judgment on their foolishness and he does this, he scatters them. The idea is he shakes them up. He shakes them up and he does this. What's interesting is that God, they they think that their sin and their rejection is gonna overturn the purposes of God. God actually judges them in their sin and he fulfills their purposes. He said, fill the earth, I'll judge you if you don't do it and we're gonna get the earth filled. We're gonna do God's purposes. What God wants, God gets. And notice the reason though, he scatters them. It's not just that God's being mean somehow, you know? His judgment is motivated by love. His judgment's motivated. He scatters them in order to help them wake up from their delusion of self-sufficiency. That's why he messes with them. 
to wake them up from their confusion that they could ever save themselves, to wake them up to their need for a savior, a savior that he intends to provide. But I want you to lean in one last time with me today because I want you to see, and you've got to see, that this is exactly what the Father still does with you and me. He will scatter you. When you start operating in a pattern of life where you shut God off, when you start operating in a pattern of life where you're playing fast and loose with his grace, I can just live however I want because after all, God will just forgive me on the other side. Listen, God will try to get your attention over and over and over and over again. He will try to disrupt your pride, the illusion of your own self-sufficiency. He will, he will do this because he loves you. But if you don't and if pay attention and when nothing else seems to work, God will lovingly scatter you in an effort to save you from fo further foolishness that you're blinded to because you're just committed to what you want. He'll use his word to warn you. If his word doesn't get it, he'll use other people to warn you. If they don't get a hearing, he will use circumstances to get your attention. We've all experienced this. He'll use a relationship that's really important to you and all of a sudden it blows up. All of a sudden, we'll experience loss out of nowhere, and we wonder what's going on. A tidal wave of suffering hits us. Nothing gets our attention like suffering. Things that had seemed to be working in your life, I'm clipping along just fine. God, whatever, I'm clipping along just fine. But then all of a sudden, those patterns of life that felt like they were working now feel like they're working against you instead of for you. You have this experience of a removal of the felt presence of God. Hey, listen, there are even places in Scripture where God talks about people getting sick and dying, and it was God's own doing to preserve their souls because they wouldn't turn and pay attention. And I don't want you to hear that as to say that every act of suffering or loss is the Father scattering work, but it is to say whenever those things come into your life and you've been acting a fool, you know it. You know it. <laughs> When, when you've been innocent and trying to best you can obey God and suffering happens, well, then you just have to, have to submit to him and trust. But when you've been acting a fool and those things happen and it touches the place where you've been acting a fool, this is God getting your attention. Our consciences bear witness. And listen, here's what I want you to hear before I go to the finish today. Isn't it better to be scattered by the hand of God and wake up, then left untouched by God and be left to yourself. Why would God scatter me? Why would he, dis why would he shake me up? So that you're not just left to yourself and less disrupted forever. It's part of the love of God. And so the purpose then in his scattering judgment is still the same purpose of his scattering discipline for us to wake us up to our need for a savior, a savior he intends to provide. Here's the Jesus finish. You ready? This passage rolls forward. You love the genealogy in 10, your favorite underlined, highlighted passage? Good. You get another one after, after verse 9 in chapter 11. Another genealogy. And you're like, I hate these genealogies. I can't even pronounce the names, you know? But the genealogy that comes next leads us to Abraham. And Abraham, we read about earlier, there's a reversal of Babel and a word of redemption. I will give you a great name and I will make you a blessing to the nations, the nations that were scattered he intends to save. The scriptures roll forward and we see that through the line of Abraham, God is fulfilling the promises of Genesis 3.15 that there will one day come one who will crush the head of that serpent. You know the next time we see a genealogy with Abraham? 
you fast forward to Matthew chapter one. A genealogy starts with Abraham, but it ends with Jesus. It comes down to Jesus. And in Jesus, God doesn't simply just look down like he did at Babel. In Jesus, God comes all the way down to join us at ground zero. The perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus for sin, the victorious resurrection of Jesus over sin and death. That's the redemption that we need. And all the scattering and all the disruptive work of God is to get your attention, to point you to him, lest you miss him. God loves you too much to let you miss Jesus. He will disrupt you to point you to Jesus. You want a great name? Jesus has the name that is above every name. And those who look to him will get the benefits of his good name before the Father. You want a good life? Attach yourself to the one who offers everlasting life, who is with you not only in this life, but forever. And I know like no one came to church today going, you know, I hope they talk about the scattering hand of God. And so like you don't want a judgment passage. But listen, passages like this Sermons like this are God's mercy to you. There is so much love in God the Father in a judgment like this. Why? Because he loves you too much not to disrupt you. That's a good dad. He loves you too much to just leave you to yourself. What if he just left you in your foolishness and it just got increasingly more foolish? God, why didn't you disrupt me? That's what I was doing. That's what's happening here. So a couple of questions and we'll be done. Is there any area of your life, or maybe even as you're hearing this today, any area of your life where you're currently experiencing the scattering hand of God? Is there any area of your life where you know he's trying to get your attention, but you've been silencing him? He loves you too much. Pay attention to the scattering. The second question is this, is there any area of your life where you've displaced the God of the Bible for a God of your own making so that you don't have to be told no? Is there any place where you've just left off parts of God because you don't like them, but they're the very parts of God that you need to know about because he's saving you there? He's saving you there. And so the invitation today is real simple, just like it was a couple of weeks ago, real simple whether you're a Christian for your whole life or whether you're here today and you're not even sure if you're a Christian, if for the first time or for the thousandth time, the invitation is turn again to Jesus. The Father will disrupt you to get you there. The invitation is to go there. Go there. He scatters us and he disrupts us so that he can heal us and save us. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to pay attention to you today? God, would you forgive us for the places that we've failed to pay attention and we've insisted on our own way? God, would you wake us up to help us see your wisdom to get our attention, to disrupt us? We wanna to confess together today, God, that you know what's best and you always point us to the savior that you provide. 
would you help us to say yes today again to Jesus? Jesus, we give you our yes. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.